This morning we're continuing our series on God's work through the life of Moses in the books of Exodus and Numbers. In the book of Exodus, we see God's power on display as he powerfully leads his people up out of Egypt and into the wilderness. In the book of Numbers, which we began last week and we'll continue in this week and next week, in that book, we began to see God's love on display as he disciplines God's people in the wilderness towards the edge of the promised land. We don't often associate love with discipline. And yet this is the way and the wisdom of a heavenly father who, as Hebrews says, disciplines those he loves, that they would grow into his likeness in Holiness, that is what Hebrews teaches us. That's what we see on display in the book of Numbers. God's people consistently, regularly sinning, literally wandering around a desert as the result of their sin and God's discipline, and yet it was always a discipline with a purpose. The holy God making his holy people to grow in holiness that they might be prepared to go into a holy land. And so too, for you and I, God's discipline in our lives, some of you may feel it keenly today, it is not without purpose, and it is not apart from his love. The book of Numbers in so many ways, it's sometimes hard and sometimes strange to apply, but the Apostle Paul says that in that way and in so many ways, the events of this book of Numbers are profoundly relevant, profoundly practical for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, now these things, and he's speaking of the events of Numbers, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test, nor grumble. And so as we come to this passage this morning, let's remember this book is for you, it's for us, and it is leading us by God's holy hand to find our hope in Jesus Christ alone. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word, we're gonna read from Numbers 16, 17, and Hebrews 7, as these passages together teach us about dwelling with God in Jesus Christ. Numbers 16, verses one through five is where we'll begin. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, 
he will bring near to him. In chapter 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. And from Hebrews chapter 7, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word and that by it you would teach us and form us and give us hope. We pray that you would cause your word to be living and active, dividing our hearts, exposing us, and then remaking us in confidence into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This past February, our beloved friend and brother Chad Scruggs stood in this pulpit and was here preaching for our Winter Grace Retreat. You may remember that on that Sunday, Chad preached from Hebrews, Hebrews 4 and 5, about the confidence that we have in drawing near to God in prayer. 
Because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, Chad said, we have God's throne and we have God's lap. That theme of drawing near to God is at the center of the passages before us this morning. When we speak of drawing near, we're speaking of of several different things, all pointing to the same reality. We're speaking of being saved by God, drawing near in salvation, being made right with Him. We're speaking of drawing near in praying to God, as Christ is our mediator, and of being with God, drawing near to Him forever in His place as His people. We will end in a similar place of hope in Jesus Christ, as Chad expressed in February. But we're going to begin by seeing the hopelessness of attempting to draw near to God without His authority and apart from His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see what Moses promises in Numbers 16, verse 5. Look down again at that, of what Moses says. He says, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. This is a reminder that this gift of drawing near, this confidence that we can have in drawing near is not for all. And sometimes our own strategies for drawing near only make things worse. This morning we're going to see this theme of drawing near to God as we follow the story of a false hope from number 16, a true hope in number 17, and a better hope from Hebrews 7. First, a false hope in number 16. The false hope is seen in this man Korah and the bitter rivalry that he instigated against Moses and Aaron, and as you read the rest of number 16, you see that it was specifically targeted at Aaron as the high priest. You see, Korah was a Levite. The Levite was the tribe of Israel responsible for maintaining and overseeing Israel's place of worship, the tabernacle. This was an incredible honor. It was a gift of God to this tribe to be entrusted with this holy work. And yet Korah had become discontent, and he began grumbling against Aaron as the high priest. Look at what he says in verse 3. It says, they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for in all the congregation, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Korah's accusation contains three main problems. Number one, Korah's accusation was loaded with half-truths. He says all the people of Israel are holy. That's true in a general way, but not all were ritually clean and authorized to come into God's place of worship. It was true that Aaron was above the assembly of Israel because he was the high priest, but it was not true that he had exalted himself to that position. Rather, God had appointed him. Korah's heart was set against God himself. 
This is the second main problem with Korah's accusation. It was not a mere relational or vocational squabble between Korah and Aaron. Moses knew and discerned that this was ultimately a complaint and an accusation against God himself. If you read down in verse 11, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, number 16, verse 11, it's not in the scripture reading, but Moses says, therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Moses knew that Korah's heart was set against the Lord. And whenever you see that term grumble in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, this is not mere complaint or uh, a quiet expression of discontent with what is served for lunch. This is vocal, rebellious opposition to God. And so the Israelites grumble about being in the wilderness saying, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. They grumble about lacking food and water, yet God was providing. They grumble now. Um, they grumbled last week, as we saw, as they sent spies into the promised land and said, those people are so big that they will squish us like grasshoppers. That was vocal distrust and rebellion against God and his promise. And now here they're grumbling against Aaron and his priesthood. This is a complaint against God. But third and most importantly, Korah's claim, the third problem with it is that it is radically man-centered. It's man-centered. Look down at verse three again. Who did Korah point to when making his case about the Israelites drawing near to God? He pointed to the Israelites. He pointed to people. He said, the people are holy and the Lord is among them. He did not appeal to who God is or what God had done or what God had said. He reasoned from a point of man-centeredness. Beloved, if we are to draw near to God, whether that is in the context of being saved or drawing near in prayer or drawing near ultimately in his presence eternally, our hope cannot be in us. It cannot be in anything in us. That is the epitome of false hope. Embracing that kind of false hope disorders our lives and it ends in destruction. It disordered Korah's life. Korah was a man who had the privilege and the joy of serving in the tabernacle and, he, and assisting these priests, he could have lived his days in humble, joyful service to God, rejoicing that God had been pleased to draw near to this people and was leading them, and that he could play a part. But his life became disordered, and he began being more concerned about his position than about God's presence, more concerned about his role than the story of redemption that God was writing. For Korah, this false hope resulted in destruction. God responded to Korah's grumbling with swift and severe justice. We didn't read it, but this afternoon, read through the rest of number 16, God literally opens the ground under Korah's feet and consumes him to the depths of the earth. 
and his family and his home. And then God sends fire and destroys those co-conspirators, those 250 well-known men that he had aligned in this coup against Aaron. He destroys them with fire. And then God sends a plague which afflicts and kills nearly 15,000 of their followers among the laity in Israel until Moses and Aaron courageously intervene. Through Korah, we see the destruction of false hope, the false hope of thinking that drawing near to God is a reward to be achieved. Nope. Drawing near to God is like an inheritance. You cannot draw near unless it is gifted to you. And that's what we see in the story of Aaron and his sprouting staff in Numbers 17. In 17, God gives true hope for Israel, true hope for drawing near to him. And he gives this true hope by giving the people a beautiful sign to confirm who it was that was appointed to draw near as the priest. God could have confirmed Aaron's priesthood in all kinds of ways. He could have done it um, punitively. He could have done it with added justice or discipline. But God, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his wisdom, he does it through giving the people a sign, a symbol, a beautiful symbol that could be kept even for generations. He gives them a sprouting staff. He commands the 12 tribes to each contribute a staff to Moses with the head or the father of each tribe having their name inscribed on it. And he promises that overnight, as those staffs lay in the tabernacle before the the testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, that one of those staffs, the one whom would be authorized as the high priest, one of those staffs would, would sprout. It would produce some kind of life. Kids, do you see what's happening here? God is promising he's going to take a dead piece of wood like you might find on a summer hike, and he's going to cause it to grow. He's going to cause it to become alive. You can even think of how God caused this Moses staff to become alive earlier in the book of Exodus. He's going to cause this staff to become alive in a beautiful way, a good way, producing something life-giving. He's going to do all of that in a period of just a few hours overnight in his place. Earlier this month, my kids and I had the privilege of going to West Africa with a few other families from PCPC. It was an amazing trip. Thank you for praying. Thank you for those who supported. Um, We praise God for this beautiful partnership between our church and this church in Senegal, this denomination in Senegal. As we prepared to to travel home, we were in the airport, and we had a few minutes in one of those duty-free shops in the airport, and I decided I needed to find my wife just one more small gift, and uh, I bypassed the alcohol and the perfume in the duty-free shop and found this. This, if you can see it, is a bulb for a baobab tree. The bulb for a baobab tree. The baobab tree is that quintessential African tree with the big, wide roots, and it grows high. It's one of the largest growing trees in the world. And I 
picked a bulb and I walked up to the counter and I went to pay. And then one of the teens on our team, Nicholas McDowell, came up to me and he said, Mr. Frey, I think you should pick a different one. This wasn't the one I had originally picked. He said, you should pick a different one. And he handed me one that had a sprout coming out the top. He said, that one's probably alive. <laughs> I am not known for my agricultural skill or wisdom. So he gave me one with a sprout. And we brought it home and we planted it and the sprout's continuing to grow. It's probably grown half an inch in the last three weeks. And in 400 years, maybe we'll have a baobab tree <laughs> in North Dallas. This little bulb is a reminder that what Aaron had given Moses was, was dead, dead. It was totally dead. And yet God brought it to life. And look at what God caused. Look at the kind of life or the kind of growing that God caused in Aaron's staff. It says on the next day in verse 8, it says, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted, and it put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Buds, blossoms, and almonds. This miraculous and beautiful sign does three things. Number one, it ceases Israel's grumbling, as God had promised, by reminding them God is in charge. God has authority. Number two, it affirms Aaron as the priest because it was his staff that sprouted. But number three, this miracle points to a future priest for Israel, a better priest for Israel. You might ask, how so? Look again at what verse eight says. What grew out of Aaron's staff? Buds, blossoms, and ripe almonds. Why almonds? Why not bananas? Why not grapes? Why not mangoes? Well, in ancient Israel, the almond tree was nicknamed the watcher. The watcher. The almond tree in Mediterranean climate still today is the first tree to emerge with buds and blossoms and fruit, almonds, in the springtime. And so farmers would look to the almond tree as a hint or a watcher of things to come, knowing that winter was ending and spring was coming. It was a clue that other trees would follow, that greater fruit would come. And so for that reason, the prophet Jeremiah used the almond tree in Jeremiah 1 as a sign, as a vision for Jeremiah that God was going to fulfill his word. He gives Jeremiah a vision of an almond tree and says that that is a promise that he is watching over his people and he is watching over the fulfillment of his word. And so when Aaron's staff budded almonds, it was a sign within a sign. It was a sign pointing that there was a better priest yet to come. It was a sign of things to come in the future. In this sign, God gave true hope as he confirmed Aaron and his descendants as the priests for Israel in that day and in that era. But in this sign, God also promised a better hope. Jesus Christ, the perfect, permanent priest for all God's people to draw near to him 
forever and ever. And so we have in this, in this miracle foreshadowing of what is to come through this bunch of almonds. Hebrews chapter 7 describes the better hope that we have in Jesus Christ as our great high priest, our better hope for drawing near to God, not in ourselves, not in an earthly temporary priesthood, but in Christ himself. Flip over to Hebrews 7 as we close. Verses 14 through 16, the author shows how Jesus, uh, he goes to great pains to show that Jesus wasn't a Levite. He wasn't descended from Aaron. Listen to how he says it. Beginning in verse 14, it says, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The author of Hebrews is going to length to show Jesus didn't become a priest over God's people by ordinary human descent. He came unexpected. He came as a surprise, as a gift appointed by God, disrupting the earthly line of human priests. Verse 15 continues. It says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're a priest forever. The author again here is saying Jesus is not only not descended from Aaron and therefore is this better priest, but he is also an eternal priest. He lives without end. He intercedes at God's right hand without end for his people. In a similar way, later in the chapter, uh, Jesus is described as being able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He holds his priesthood permanently. He's better because he is unique, not descended from Aaron. He's better because he's permanent. He's better because he saves he is the priest who not only intercedes, but he is the priest who is himself the sacrifice, offering up himself to once and for all solve the problem of sin and guilt and death and separation from God. And so verse 18 in Hebrews 7 says, on the one hand, a former commandment, and it's speaking of these commandments from numbers of the Levitical priesthood, on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope. Just as Hebrews describes Jesus coming and bringing a better covenant founded on better promises through a better sacrifice in better blood to bring God's people to a better country. He is for us as we think about drawing near to him, whether it is for salvation, whether it is for communion and prayer, whether it is to live with him forever, he is the better hope because he's the only hope. We cannot trust in ourselves. 
We cannot trust in those old ways. We trust in the name of Jesus Christ. If our hope is in ourselves, we are condemned. If our hope is in some old form of drawing near, such as the Levitical priesthood, we have missed out and have traded the fulfillment for foreshadowing. Now, I'm confident that not many of you are looking to the Levitical priesthood for confidence when you pray or as you come to worship or as you think about your eternal home and dwelling place. But in a similar way, we can find ourselves subtly seeking a sense of confidence before God through, through another person, through a pastor or a writer or a parent or a friend, someone who we look to as more mature, more able to give help and wisdom and counsel when we are in need. Or perhaps through some, perhaps we feel more able to draw near through some good action that we perform through church attendance or volunteer service or daily devotions or going on a missions trip. Are those things wrong? No. They're just not our hope. They are not our hope. As we sang earlier, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Now, not many of us are going to say, you know what, I hope that God will hear my prayers because I did this thing or I know this person. Not many of us would have the gumption to say that. Most of us probably understand that that doesn't line up with the gospel. But think of the inverse scenario. How many of us have ever felt further from God because of sin? that we have felt further from God because of another person's disqualifying failure who has shepherded or mentored a pastor, a writer, a parent, a friend, or because of some wrong action on our part, lack of commitment to the assembly of the church, selfish use of time or money, sexual sin or addiction. Are those things wrong? Absolutely. Are they a reason to despair? Never, never. Christ is our hope. And if Christ is our hope, he then gives us the ability to confess to him and to one another, to repent, to change. That's the work that God was doing in the people of Israel in this book. They were sinning and he was disciplining them that they would grow in holiness and likeness to him. And that's the story that he's writing. If you're a child of God today, the story of your Christian life is one where you have and will fail. And God, your loving heavenly father, will discipline in love to grow you up into the fullness of his son, Jesus Christ, to bear greater fruit in you Our hope cannot be in ourselves. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what temptation or what suffering, what relational strife, what material need you are facing, but I know this. You need a great high priest this week. You need to draw near to God. You need to enjoy and experience life with him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
draw near by faith, seeing Jesus, trusting Jesus as the way to draw near to the living God and have sins forgiven. If you are a Christian and you're living this life of of wilderness wandering, of sorrows and sufferings, of challenges and responsibilities, you need to draw near to God in prayer. You cannot do it on your own. You need this great high priest, the one who is perfect, the one who is better. He is all sufficient. Five years ago this week, the last week of July 2018, my mother had an emergency surgery to operate on a brain tumor. And the night before her surgery, she couldn't sleep. And she spent hours texting out on her flip phone a a repeated message to several different people. And because of the brain tumor affecting her, there was misspellings and There were some changes in word order, but about 20 people got the same essential message. Her message was this, three words, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. She didn't explain all that that meant theologically or biblically or experientially to her, but it was a sign and a communication that come what may in that surgery, Jesus was enough. We can trust him always as a savior, as our priest, as our friend. He is yours. Draw near. Father, we thank you for the gift that you have given in Jesus Christ, the gift we always needed and never deserved or expected. And we pray that in this week, in this day, however it is that we need to take hold, we pray that we would, that we would draw near to you in him. Father, help us in this, for we're weak, we're distracted, we're so often self-reliant. Give us that faith, that pure faith to cling to Christ and to him alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing as we close.